suddenly when you start working at high intensity, it's the oxygen that becomes limiting. Their economy, the amount of oxygen it takes to move at a certain speed had to increase. And at high intensity, you just don't have that extra room to, to be able to move up to a, a new oxygen demand. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCubbin. I'm an accredited sports dietitian based in Melbourne in Australia. I'm also a lecturer at Monash University and do a lot of work with athletes in all walks of life. And I'm joined by my co-host, another colleague of mine from Monash University and another accredited sports dietitian, Stephanie Gaskill. How are you, Steph? I'm good, Alan. Yeah, hanging out to get into the lab. Yeah. Been a while it's been a long while i think it's been what march yeah something like that it's uh yeah it feels like it's gone on forever but yeah hopefully we'll be back in there yeah. soon now speaking of the lab obviously that's one of the places that we both work at monash university uh working with with athletes um particularly around research studies in sports nutrition uh, but both of us also work with athletes from all walks of life uh in running cycling and triathlon steph obviously your background you've been quite an accomplished ultra runner yourself uh, and you've done a lot of work with runners of all distances not just ultra running but you've also done a lot of work with uh, cyclists and particularly triathletes as well from complete you know, recreational and beginners right through to professional athletes. Yeah, yep. Yeah, have a, have a good mix and in, enjoy the challenge with, with those. And you, you too, Alan, you, um, I mean, we kind of do a, a similar thing, loving ultra endurance and have always, you know, uh, enjoyed working together in, in this area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do a lot more, probably more in, in cycling, uh, but certainly do a lot of work in, in running as well and, and triathlon. So I'm a, I do some consulting work for Triathlon Australia for their high performance program. So they're Melbourne-based athletes, um, sort of both able-bodied and, and Paralympic uh, athletes that are based down here in Melbourne. And then, yeah, a range of, of, um, of other people that I work with, runners, um, cyclists, triathletes from, you know, complete beginners through to to professional athletes. Yep. Yeah. All right. So that's who we are. In terms of the podcast itself, each week we're going to take a deep dive into common questions that people ask. So these are things that, you know, if you're a runner, a cyclist, a triathlete of all different levels, these are the kind of questions that people are always having chats about when they're waiting for their riding buddies to turn up or when they're in the cafe or having breakfast together. These are the sorts of things that often go unanswered, often have a lot of myths and misconceptions and the stuff that can go around in circles for hours. So this podcast is going to answer those questions. So what we're going to do is we're going to break down these questions uh, and invite some of our friends and colleagues, experts, researchers, and athletes, coaches as well in some cases, to add their perspectives into the mix and then finally answer the questions that people are asking. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via social media. We're certainly uh, happy to have suggestions for which questions we're going to answer on the podcast as well. So you can get in touch with us uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram at The Long Munch. So Steph, episode number one today, obviously very exciting. Do you want to give us a bit of a rundown on what we're going to be doing, what we're going to cover. Yeah. Uh, so we are answering the question, is low carb right for me? Couldn't have picked a more controversial one to start with, Steph. I know. I know. We've got to hit it off with a bang, Alan. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I guess a lot of podcasts, they sort of ease their way into it with the guests, invite a few people and, and work them, work up the courage to in, invite the big fish. Yep. But we've got the big fish, episode number one. <laughs> Who's our guest? Hook, line and sinker, we got her. Absolutely. Uh, it is Professor Louise Burke. Ba-boom. Ba-boom. The, the mother of sports nutrition, particularly, you know, as we know her in, in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. And done a whole bunch of research on low-carb eating and the effects on athletic performance for the types of sports that we all do, running, cycling and triathlon. So really the perfect mm-hmm. guest to, to kick things off with episode number one. But yeah. we're going to have a couple other things in the podcast as well. Steph, tell us about those. So we're, we often... You know, you and I and also our, our team at One Ash Uni, we, we have a, a few rants. Um, we get quite quite heated. Um, and so... Not, not with thought, each other. No. <laughs> well, no, not all the time. Um, <laughs> so we are, we're going to get, get that off our chest. So each episode we're, we're going to have a little bit of a rant. Yep, absolutely. Yep. And then obviously we'll, we'll tackle our feature question, which of course today is... Is low carb right for me? So if you're a, a runner, a cyclist, a triathlete, doesn't matter what distance, doesn't matter what level, we're going to answer that question for you today. So I think, Steph, without further ado, it's time to get stuck into episode one of The Long Munch. Let's do it. Every episode of The Long Munch, we are going to get something off our chest. And Steph, you get the honours to do this firstly today. Now, as dietitians working in sports nutrition, you hear lots of stuff, you see lots of stuff, social media is awash with information, some of it good, some of it not so good, Steph. And every now and then you come across something and you just think, don't get me started. Steph, <laughs> yeah. what's on All your right. mind today? I'll go, I'll, I'll go for it. So it's, you know, just because something is beneficial for some or someone doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be or will be for you. Um, so we really need to like weigh out all the pros and cons. So an example is, you know, low carb, it, it may be beneficial for, for certain people, but then for others it, it could be detrimental. You know, it could be detrimental to their performance. It could be detrimental to their health. Um, and as we'll see in this very podcast, there's for, for low carb, there's, there's definitely this individual uh, response and we need to consider all things. So we don't just want to think about, okay, well, you know, is low carb, you know, right for me in terms of fueling? That's one aspect. But then we also need to consider okay, well, what about my overall health? What, what is it doing in terms of my gut health, in terms of my bone health, in terms of my energy availability? Um, so I just want to try and encourage people. It's, there's no black and white with, with anything. Um, and I think we know that very well. Um, and so, yeah, just have, have, a, have, a, have a think about whatever nutrition or, or plan you're thinking of, of doing, um, don't just think about performance, think about health as well. Bigger picture. 
yeah, bigger picture stuff, totally. Yeah, yeah. and I think the, the second part to that, Steph, uh, which I think you kind of alluded to, is that you know, often people uh, get into the trap of saying, oh, well, they're a great runner or, or they're a pro cyclist. What are they doing? Mm. I should be doing that as well and, and copying what other people are doing. And, again, yep. you know, it may work well for you, but mm-hmm. it may well not suit you very well at all. And so that's often the trap that people get into. So it's about, I guess, taking that information, applying that to your own situation in terms of your, your life, your routines, your habits, and, as you said, you know, your health and, and your goals um, yep. of what you want out of your sport and your training, and then, yeah, making a, an informed decision. Yeah, totally. And and just, you know, social media, like we jump on it. So we see one picture and a prime example of this was um, I think one of the Tour de France guys, I don't know if it was Chris Froome, yeah. you know, he, he had a picture of a low-carb meal that he had for just like one part of maybe it was a particular stage that he was doing and then everyone's thinking, oh, low-carb, you know, Chris Froome does it. Like, you know, he's hardly eating anything. Keto and Chris. Yeah. And it was a tiny little bit of um, his pathway of, of, you know, how he's getting through the tour where they back off certain points and then they load in, in other areas. So, um, and, and athletes, not, not just athletes, but individuals, they, we don't always understand necessarily what we're saying, you know, that we say we're, we're following low carb. I mean, the amount of people that I see that say, oh, I'm following low carb and you actually, you know, find out what they're eating they have no idea. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. All right. Context. How do you feel, Steph? I you feel, feel a little calm? bit better. <laughs> you feel better? Blood pressure's down a bit? Blood pressure's down, yeah. Excellent, yep. excellent. All right, so let's get into it then. Our big topic for today is low-carb right for me. And as we've seen, it's going to be very dependent on the person, very dependent on the situation. But... Let's get into our discussion with Professor Louise Burke. Is low-carb right for me? There are plenty of people who could answer this question and give it context and give it meaning and and look at the different scenarios. And obviously, Steph and I can have our uh, bits and pieces involved with this. But really, there's no one better to answer this question than Professor Louise Burke. Louise is a sports dietitian here in Australia. Uh, For about three decades, she was the head of sports nutrition at the Australian Institute of Sport. Uh, She travelled to, I think, four Olympic Games as, as part of the team there and has worked with many, many, many elite athletes over the journey. Um, But as part of her role, she's also been a researcher and has done probably more research studies actually on low-carb, high-fat diets in athletic performance than anyone else um, to date. So I think a lot of people don't realise, you know, they they see low-carb diets having come up since sort of 2010-ish in terms of popularity you know, Louise was doing this work you know, back in the late 1990s, so it's it's certainly not a, a new area for her. And she's looked at it, as you'll hear in this conversation that we had with her, from all sorts of different angles. So really excited to get into this one. Um, Steph, anything else mm-hmm. you want to add before we, we listen to this conversation with Louise? No, just that, you know, she's been definitely one of our mentors and someone we've looked up from, you know, from when we first got into nutrition and, and looked at sports nutrition and um, she's known I think as the the mother of sports nutrition at least in in Australia and um, one of the most renowned um, sports dietitians and researchers in in the world you know really so um, I think we're just bloody lucky to have her on on the podcast yeah absolutely 
All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get into our conversation with Professor Louise Burke. Our question today and our topic of our podcast is, is low carb right for me? And I guess there's probably hasn't been a greater question amongst runners, cyclists and triathletes over the last five or 10 years, probably than this one and all sorts of opinions and social media shenanigans. And, and obviously you've been in the thick of that being someone who does research in this area and, and publishing. Um, but first of all, I guess we need to start off with a bit of a, a definition because we're talking about low carb diets, but we need to define what we actually mean by that before we get in and actually talk about it. So do you want to give us a bit of background, Louise, into what you see as low carb or how that might be defined? Yes, and I think it's a great start because one of the problems that makes this area so tough to work in is that everybody means something different when they use those words. So if we could suggest that there's sort of three different approaches to a low-carb diet, and the one that was first um, introduced, at least in sports nutrition in the 1980s, was a ketogenic, very low-carbohydrate, moderate-protein, high-fat diet and that was so restricted in in carbohydrate it was allowing the body to be exposed to ketone bodies which your body is producing in the absence of another glucose source and the kind of diet that would or the macronutrients that would meet those guidelines would be something less than 50 grams of carbohydrate per day which is usually less than about five percent of energy You need to keep protein moderate at about 15 to 20% of protein, which is about the common diet, and most of it's coming from fat, so about 75 to 80% of energy coming from fat. And that diet keeps the body levels or the the, um, plasma levels of, of ketone bodies high, and it's trying to both improve the muscle's ability to burn fat because that's the, the major energy source, but it's also bathing the, the body with these ketone bodies extensively. And that's different from the next phase of the low-carb diet that appeared in sports nutrition, which was a non-ketogenic but low-carb diet. And here the carb restriction wasn't quite so strict, um, generally around about 15%, 20% maybe of, of energy was coming from carbs, around 2 grams per kilogram body mass of the athlete. And the idea was that it was restricting carbohydrate below the level that the muscle was using for fuel sources in training every day, but not enough to keep continual levels of of ketosis. And so in this, again, proteins kept moderate, 15 to 20% of calories, and then we've got about 60, 65% of energy coming from fat. And then the third one, which is a more recent... um, entry into the market, if you like, is the carnivore diet, which again is very low carb, but this time there's extra protein, there's no restriction on the protein and fat. And that would have ketosis for some parts of the day. The thing about the high protein content is that it has um, an amount of amino acids that can be converted to glucose, and so therefore it might interfere with the, the, the ketone body production so that might be a, a difference. But that's just a, a sort of a, a new um, entry to the sports world, this, this carnivore diet, and I haven't had any experience with studying that. We've really only looked at the ketogenic and the non-ketogenic versions, those first two that I descri- described. 
Um, so, so far all, all the information, all the interest has been on the macronutrient content, but one of the things that I'm also interested in, and you would be too as, as dietitians, is the dietary quality. And mm-hmm. one of the things that's happening in most areas of nutrition, doesn't matter which diet it is, is that you might start off with some good ideas about a diet and it's all based on real foods and nutrient-dense foods. But very quickly, people start cheating and the food industry comes to the party and starts making all sorts of you know, false chocolate and false mm-hmm. ice cream to meet whatever your dietary um, requirements are. And so... I'm aware that quite a few athletes, when you talk to them in real life, they're not really following the intended use of the diet, even though the macronutrients might be the same, but they might be using a whole lot of sort of contrived foods and not very nutritious forms of foods to meet those those requirements. So I'd hope that if we're talking about low-carb diets, we would be trying to get the best from them and trying to be making them up from real foods. And I, I get worried when I see all these ads for fat bombs and mm. keto ice cream and keto chocolate and the all those sort of yeah and the you know the treat foods they're, they're all part of a diet but when people think that they're getting away with it by just eating those foods and they can say oh yes but it's still low carb and oh yes it's still high in fat it's really defeating some of the purposes of the of the intended diet yeah for sure what sort of sparked your initial interest in this area of um, you know changing the, the fat versus carbohydrate in the diet? Well, I'm always looking for something that's safe, effective and, and legal to enhance sports performance. That was what I was paid to do at the Australian Institute of Sport. And I'm an athlete and well, of a very moderate calibre, but um, I'm interested in getting the best out of myself as well. So you're always tinkering around in your mind with things that might enhance performance and it's mesmerising to think that we have all this body fat, so much of it in comparison to the amount of carbohydrate that we store. And so the concept that you might be able to have your muscle better able to take advantage of, of the plentiful fat stores rather than run out of carbohydrate stores, as can happen in some endurance events, well, you, you know, you can't overlook that. It just sounded like a, a too-good-to-be-true idea. And so in the first instance, we explored the fat adaptation without the ketogenic aspect of that diet, we found that it certainly upregulated your ability to use fat as a fuel. In just five days, if you restrict carbohydrate and there's high fat intakes, your muscle just retools in so many different ways to be able to burn more fat. Even in an endurance-trained person who's already better than a sedentary person, it could still double it. So that's that's a pretty huge um, improvement in such a short period of time. But no matter how much we tried to, to do that and convert that to performance improvements, we just couldn't find it. So then we had the idea, well, maybe you need to have the best of both worlds. So we'd have this um, protocol where you do the fat adaptation and you only needed to do it for five days to get the benefits. Mm-hmm. So then you would do that and go into your race with a day of restoring carbohydrate. And we thought that's that's going to be the, the bomb because you've got this capacity to burn more fat, but you've got the carbs there when you need to turn on that higher gear. And we still couldn't find improvements in performance, even though we found that there was still a preferred use of fat compared to just when you're on your high-carb diet all the time. Um, and we found all this glycogen being spared 
when we came to the the home run or when we came to the you know the the breakaway or whatever the the part of the race that's the the um match winning move we just couldn't find any benefits to performance and it was only when we started looking at it backwards all our focus had been on what's happening to the muscle in terms of its ability to burn fat but suddenly when we looked at the other side of the coin what's happening to its ability to burn carbs we found that just as the muscle was retooling to make it better at burning fat it was also down to, downing tools and preventing it from being able to use those carbohydrates in the oxidative pathways, even when the carbohydrate's there. So it wasn't that it was sparing muscle glycogen, it was impairing muscle glycogen use. And so we started to realise, well, it's not going to give you that advantage that you need in races where you need to have that extra gear that comes from having carbohydrate burnt at high intensities. So we left it alone at that point. Um, we thought we'd gone as far as we could go. And I'm not saying that it doesn't have um, application for some sports because my focus, of course, is looking at the sports that are on the Olympic program and they're very much in the endurance phase or even the, the longer events like the road cycling or the um, 50K race walk, for example, even though you'd put those into sort of the ultra-endurance bracket or at the low end of that, there's still events in which the successful athlete needs to have that high gear because the race isn't just a long, slow effort. There's tactical or terrain differences or some parts of the the race in which the athlete who's successful needs to be able to move at more like an endurance pace. And so all our um, efforts had come to naught in the sense that, yes, we could make the muscle better able to burn fat at lower intensities, but because we were interfering with, with that success gear, it suddenly seemed to be not relevant to the kind of sports that I was working with. The other group that was um, interested were the South African group from the University of Cape Town, Tim Noakes' group, and my husband was working with them, or my now husband was working with them at the time. So, um, you know, we found that um, common interest and, uh, yes, we bonded over that adaptation studies and um, so we were we were sort of both looking at it from different angles and it was really their paper that um, stopped me from thinking it, it had further currency to, to pursue so we had looked at um, our fat adaptation models where we would do the different intervention we'd fat adapt the athlete and then put different amounts of carbohydrate back and we'd always then have them do this laboratory protocol where they do a certain um, number of hours at a steady state kind of riding so that we could measure what's happening with metabolism and then we'd get them to do a time trial at the end of that. So it was a bit of that sort of hybrid research where you're trying to understand what's going on and then get some measurement of performance, but it's a little bit artificial um, when you compare it to a, a really um, a real-life event. And so we had done that study and been able to take muscle biopsies from the athletes and understand what was going on at the muscle level to work out where the, the problem lay. But um, Tim Noakes' group, Lisa Haverman, as first author doing her PhD, did the study where they had a group of triathletes simply do a 100K cycling time trial. And so they just put all their money on the performance angle of it and they had them do the fat adaptation, then do a um, carbohydrate load and taking carbohydrate 
on yeah. trial one trial, comparing that to having the same um, carbohydrate preparation but not the fat adaptation prior to it. And what they found is that even though the overall performance was, was similar, in the middle of the time trial, they had the athletes do some sprints. So they had to either do a 1K sprint or a 4K sprint continually over that um, 100K. And it was when they had to go into those high gears, into the um, the 1K sprint, so they're getting up, you know, 400 watts of power on a bike, getting up to sort of 90% of, of heart rate or, or work max, then you found that the impairment of the performance was was evident there. So this idea that it was knocking out the top gear was really shown really nicely in that study. And when I looked at that and put it into the context of mechanisms that we could then use to explain it, it seemed right. Well, I I don't work with athletes who can afford to sacrifice that top gear so it's been a really fun thing. I've learned a lot about metabolism. There may be other events that athletes do that could use this, but it's not any longer in my area of interest because my athletes have got different needs. When they published that paper in, um, in, in the Journal of Applied Physiology, we were um, invited to write a commentary to go with it. And mm-hmm. so... Um, oh, in fact, there was another group. There was a Scandinavian group, Benta Keynes and Eric Richter and Jorn Hellier were the other group that were also interested in this fat adaptation. And so Benta Keynes and I were invited to write a commentary for the, um, the article and we called it The Nail in the Coffin, um, mm-hmm. just sort of saying, well, look, we've, we've tried so hard. We've spent, you know, I've spent nearly this seven or eight years of my life and I don't know how many versions of this study we've done. We're up to sort of that adaptation, the musical, by the time we, um, we left it. But, you know, we, we got to the point where it, it was quite clear that it was not going to move in the direction that would be useful for the athletes that I work with. And so um, we that's that was the title of the commentary. We, you know, we were just simply commenting on the... Um, findings of the study from Cape Town and it's funny that paper just keeps getting brought up all the time you know I'm the one that wrote the nail in the coffin (laughs) and I'm thinking hang on I've spent so much of my life trying to make this work and be open-minded about it Um, and yet you know it's sort of your words are quoted back to you as if Mm. you're public enemy number one. I remember actually it's funny you say that Louise because I remember I can't remember what it was but it was you know fairly early on in my career and I remember seeing all these papers come out and I said to someone She's still trying to make this work. <laughs> there comes another one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that nail in the coffin paper, I think from memory, was about 2006 that that was published. Yes. Yeah. And then um, that was kind of it. You went off and sort of uh, mostly did sort of other things and, and research in other areas and obviously, you know, continuing to work with your athletes. And I think a really good point that you mentioned there is that you were looking specifically at the athletes that you were employed to work with, which are Olympic athletes doing Olympic sports. And that may be completely different to non-elite, you know, non-professional, non-elite athletes. It may be completely different to people doing, you know, 100-mile ultramarathons or Ironman or uh, 24-hour mountain biking and things like that. So, um, you know, I guess that's an important point here is that you're not just saying this doesn't work for everyone. You're just saying it's not working for the people that I need to work with or I'm employed to work with. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I, I think that's one of the problems with our current um, 
um, way of doing science business that, you know, everything's so black and white. It's all 140 mm. characters or 280 characters. It's all, you know, it's all simplified and there's got to be just one true way of doing things. And it's very difficult to work in an environment where that's the way people want to see things when you're trying to say, no, it's all context. You know, there's, there's horses for courses and yep. it's just that the horses I'm working with um, don't need this. They're better off with that. So, yep. Yeah, exactly right. Fast forward almost 10 years, 2015, you then published another paper that said, or in the title it had, did we nail in the coffin too soon? Or did we call the nail in the coffin too soon? Mm. So what made you exhume the coffin and open it back up again? Was it, was it, was it Twitter or was it something else? Yeah, it was a bit of Twitter. I mean, it was the emergence of this um, interest in ketogenic diets and there was such fervour about it. Um, you know, this is sort of cycle three of the, the high fat or the fat adaptation um, movement in sports nutrition. The first time was just that sort of single finny paper that interesting but um, died. And then our sort of almost decade of, of the fat adaptation, carbohydrate restoration, and that had gone away. And then suddenly there's this emergence of interest and it's the best thing since sliced bread and yet there's absolutely no new data. And what you're hearing are all these anecdata of successful athletes saying that, you know, they've, they've gone keto and it's the best thing out and all sorts of um, sort of resurrection of the Finney study. So some lay books came out, Steve Finney and Jeff Volick, um, who two of the, the good workers in this area had um, written a couple of books on the, the low-carb, high-fat. And so we suddenly get this new term, the LCHF, the low-carb, high-fat diet, which... Um, is meant to mean the ketogenic version of it, but that became the sort of new shorthand. And you have to look and say, well, maybe we missed something. Like, you know, not everything that you do is the final word on anything. You you sometimes need to um, be open-minded enough to go back and say, well, no, we could possibly have missed something. So I was starting to work at that stage with um, race walking, and that's a really interesting um, event because... It has a, a 50k event which takes around three and a half hours and, you know, that's getting into that territory again where glycogen depletion or um, ability to have enough substrate can be limiting for performance. And so I just wanted to start looking to see whether we'd missed anything from the ketogenic diet. Do you want to just give us a, a quick summary of what you've found in those studies? So we started off with our first study with the three-week adaptation period and we chose that because the original Finney study was four weeks. When I say three weeks, ours was actually three and a half and yep. I'll um, claim those extra half <laughs> a week um, because one of the, the big fights in the whole diet wars at the moment is Correct. we've gone too short with our study so that we deliberately made it not work. Um, but no, we actually tried to mimic the Finney study and we actually tried to mimic the way that Finney and Jeff Foley had written about it in their book. Their book said that in two to three weeks there's um, of a ketogenic diet, you adapt to being able to burn more fat and that leads to better performance. And so we did the best job we could. I mean, we all, you always set up stuff to try and get a positive outcome. I mean, that's why you do the study to um, to try and find something new that could be positive for an athlete. Um, we don't do things deliberately to try and disprove them, if you like. Mm. Um, so we we had our athletes come into camp. We had elite race walkers, 
and we chose to educate them about the ketogenic diet, the high carbohydrate diet, the periodized diet, and we talked to them about the pros and cons of what the adaptation phases were going to do and what that might um, offer for performance, and we let the athletes choose what they thought they would like the best. And we did that because we wanted them to race and to get the best performance from them. And so rather than randomise them to a treatment like you might do in a perfect scientific methodology, we didn't want to have people being given the ketogenic diet to do with the belief that that was bad for them because if, you know, if you're already thinking you've got the dud diet, mm. when you turn up to the race, you're not going to try as hard. You're just going to you know, slouch around. Mm. So we wanted to make this as real life as possible and we had two authentic races. These were 10,000-metre track races um, we had them sanctioned by the IAAF. We had the race judges. We had prize money. We had, um, you know, elite athletes to, to make this the real deal. And we had them do it before and after. They had had three weeks on these different diets. And we were able to show at the end of the three weeks that the diet, that the group that had been on the ketogenic diet had maximised fat um, utilisation as a fuel. They had... Um, got about a 250% increase in their ability to burn fat and that they'd lost a little bit of weight because they'd lost the glycogen stores and the water that's um, um, stored with the glycogen. So they went into that second race with, we would have thought, all the benefits of this new energy source plus being a little bit lighter, but they didn't improve their performance while the carbohydrate teams, both the periodized and the, um, the high carbohydrate groups had a performance improvement. And if we look at the difference between the race times, we've, we've now done this three times and we've found there's about a 7% difference that mm. the high carbohydrate groups get 7% more out of the race two performance compared to race one in comparison to what the ketogenic diet group. Now, when we do these real-life studies, of course, we're doing outside races and sometimes the weather's different and so there may be some either benefit to performance or some impairment to performance based on some of the weather conditions. We always have to take that into account, but we've always got the control group there so we can not just look at the absolute change in, in race performance, we can look at the difference between what happens with the ketogenic diet group and the... Um, the carbohydrate groups and it's been a really consistent finding that there's an impairment of performance. The other thing I should have said is that over the three weeks of the of the training camp, the all of the athletes got fitter. So there was about a 5% improvement in their VO2 maxes over that period of time. And so when they are all um, lined up for the race, that's at race two, you would have thought that the ketogenic diet group should have had a benefit with all the extra fitness, mm. the lightness, and um, their new ability to burn fat. But what we feel is the, the problem is that there's just a limit to how high intensity you can push with um, fat as a fuel. And we suddenly remembered from Physiology 101 that part of being able to burn fuel is not just to have the fuel available, but it's to have the oxygen supplied to the muscle to be able to oxidise it. And when we look at the formula for how fat and carbohydrate are burnt and produce the ATP, which is the, the fuel source the muscle uses, 
it turns out that there's more oxygen needed to completely burn fat to produce the ATP than carbohydrate. And so there's about a 4 to 5% efficiency that you get with a carbohydrate approach than the fat approach. So we were certainly making our ketogenic athletes better able to, to go for longer periods at um, lower intensity. But suddenly when they start working at high intensity, it's the oxygen that becomes limiting their economy. The amount of oxygen it takes to move at a certain speed had to increase. And at high intensities, you just don't have that extra room to, to be able to move up to a, a new oxygen demand. You sort so, of max out your ability to bring in more. Yeah, and look, people say to me, oh, but I don't understand why that's so important. And um, I say, well, you know, anything, when you talk to a coach about what's important as an endurance athlete, yes, it's great to have a high VO2 max and it's great to be able to work at a consistent, very high proportion of that, but it's the speed you're moving that's the most important thing and that's about economy. Mm. It's your ability to make all the, the ATP that you're able to produce turn into speed and the oxygen that's required to produce it. And if you can change economy, if you can improve your economy, then, you know, you can move at a higher speed for less oxygen. And if you want to realise how important that is, you just need to look at what else is happening in sport at the moment. These new Nike shoes, which provide this um, 4% improvement in performance, are just transforming the way that, you know, that, that PBs in half marathons and marathons are going because suddenly for the same oxygen cost, you've got 4% more economy or speed to, to do it. And you can see how much that's changing performance. And so if you're going in the opposite direction by choosing a different fuel source, then you'd also expect there'd be a, a really marked effect on your ability to um, to perform. So it'd be similar to Kipchoge throwing away his fancy shoes and going back to his old ones. Well, exactly right. And, you know, that's, that's something that people feel comfortable about. And so if they can think in those same terms about the fuel sources then it might make more sense to them. Yeah. And so just for a bit of context here, Louise, so the, the performance you're measuring here was a 10-kilometre race walk. So the finish times of that are about 40, 45 minutes? Um, yeah, 40 minutes is probably, on average, you know, we'd have some females in some of our studies and some um, of the less, um, the junior athletes who aren't as high calibre. But, you know, you're looking at our top athletes who could do that in 30, 39, 40 minutes that's pretty yep. much moving. That's, you know, that's my top running speed. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and people say, well, that's not really endurance. But I say, yes, well, you know, when you're doing a study and you're wanting to measure performance before and after, you can't ask an athlete to race a 50K race mm. three weeks apart at Olympic pace. Mm. But one of the reasons that we think that um, our, our um, findings really hold true is that if you have a look at the way that the 50K race is, is done, it's really become a, a, a race of two halves now where the first 40 Ks get the athletes to a certain point and then they've got another speed. Um, the world record for the 50 K um, was, was broken oh, a couple of years ago. Um, and the, the last portion of that, or the, at 40, 48 K, the last um, K was done in less than four minute Ks. And so there's just a different way in which the tactics of these events require athletes to have very high speed. So you really need to have that 10K speed at some point in your race, even if you're doing it for 50K, 
that's yep. what's going to make you successful. So um, it does have some relevance. And um, so, you know, we feel that the, the logistics of doing the study to get the best performance of the athletes was was um, robust. And, you know, we feel that even though it wasn't asking them to, to do a 50K or a marathon, it still has relevance when you translate the findings. When you're dealing with recreational people or people who are doing these, these very long events and there's a different competitive um, approach to it, then, you know, you are dealing with different events. And, and also, you know, we need to think about even individuals in the same race. I mean, I, when I do a marathon, you know, when Kip Draghi does his marathon in two hours mm. and I've run in a couple of races that he's been in at the same time and I take nearly twice as long to get to the end. Mm. So we're running different races, even though we've both run a marathon um, you know, he's, he's running at 85 to 90% of VO2 max and I'm probably doing more like, you know, 70 to 75. So it's a different event and there's probably some different considerations for the way you might fuel for it. Yeah. And so, again, just for, for context for the listeners, so that 70 to 75% VO2 max you're talking about is probably, what, about 80 to 85% of max heart rate? It's yeah, probably, probably some... yeah. About yep. 80, 80%, yeah. Whereas a, a Kipchoge, you'd be working more sort of around the 90% mark of maximum heart rate? They're, they're, you know, they're, they're right on the red line, absolutely yeah. on the red line. And yep. I'm on my red line, if you like, but I'm, I'm, I need to have a lower red line knowing that it's going to take me, you know, three and a half hours to get there rather than his two. Yes, yeah, and he probably couldn't hold, well, he couldn't hold that red line for the three hours himself. No, <laughs> no. Mm. It's been a, a consistent finding in our studies and in other people's studies too that there's very much a responder and non-responder and mm. that the variability in performance is, is much wider on the ketogenic diet. So it seems to be useful for some people, but it's very unsuited to others. And so um, there's probably more likelihood of um, if you get the right people in your study um, or the wrong people in your study, you, you might have some distorted outcomes. So from your research and your findings and then also from, from your overall experience then, Louise, um, do you think that there is a place for low-carb, high-fat eating for endurance athletes? Well, look, I guess we have to define what endurance is and under the, the typical um, definition where you might say it's it's an event that's you know less than three hours of performance, then it's probably not as applicable as it might be to, to events of ultra endurance nature where you you might be going four, five, six hours, and you've got to think about whether you've got access to be able to refuel during that race because um, I've certainly when I've done my Ironman events it takes me you know ten eleven hours to do those events. Mm-hmm. Um, I still use a, a carbohydrate-focused approach to it because there's plenty of opportunity in that race for me to be able to take in carbohydrate so that if I'm going to be relying on carbohydrate oxidation as my main, main fuel source, then I've got to be able to keep piling it in because what I prepared in terms of glycogen beforehand, even by carbohydrate loading, aren't going to be enough. But if you're in an event where that might be inconvenient, you know, you might be, um, you know, having to do self-catering um, or being self-sufficient when you're doing your, your event or if you're in hostile conditions. You now, if you're doing an Arctic sled ride or you're doing something that was in really hostile conditions and you had to minimise what you were carrying with you, 
well then it might make more sense to think about being more reliant on fat where you've either got your own body fat stores or it's much lighter to carry fat because it's got more calories per gram. So, um, you know, there, there may be horses for courses there. And, you know, some, some athletes just um, can't stomach taking in extra food during these kinds of events, even if they can carry it. Mm-hmm. And so that's another group that might have some sort of an, an advantage. I mean, you guys have got more experience in this um, personally than I have, so you could tell me what you know, your <laughs> thoughts are. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the, the other thing is as well, like just in, let's say, your ultra-endurance exercise, um, so 100Ks, 100Milers, um, where, you know, they can be out there for 11 hours or, and obviously the more recreational can be um, 20 or overnight. Um, what about for just thinking about, because I know we often say, okay, well, ultra-endurance exercise, we're working at, you know, this lower intensity, um, but there's certainly times in, in these events, um, even for recreational athletes, um, you know, where they do have these surges or these kicks that are needed. Um, mm. So that's, yeah, do we do we still think that um, or do we think that low-carb, high-fat, you know, is perhaps still best for them or or is it? I think this is, this is where I'd, I'd need to spend more time with the athletes and get some insights from their approaches. Um, my nearest approach or my nearest um, experience with it has been with triathlon and I still believe that the athletes that I've worked with do better with the carbohydrate-supported approach um, because they really are moving at higher intensities and do need to have that um, that surge. Mm-hmm. And I really, I mean, I, I, I haven't met, but I've read a lot of the um, anecdotes about people like Zach Bitter who, you know, has a low-carb, high-fat lifestyle, but he does include carbohydrate in some of his training sessions and he does include carbohydrate intake in races. So I guess he's tried to find that balance um, with being able to, you know, remain somewhat fat adapted but having carbohydrate going in. And and I also think about, you know, what's happening to other parts of your, your body and particularly your, your brain because... Um, you know, carbohydrate is not just having a metabolic role in the muscle. It's also having um, roles in terms of how your brain's feeling and that we certainly know that even just tasting carbohydrate can help you just feel um, like you can go a bit faster or feel less tired or feel, you know, the, the, have a reduction in how hard you think you're moving. Mm. And so being able to supply some carbohydrate during the race, even in small amounts, can have just an effect on the central nervous system and brain to make you feel better. So, um, I, you know, I've, I've, I'm quite prepared to experiment with with these kinds of approaches, but um, there's still nothing that tells me that there's not one thing or the other that, that could both be useful. That You know, I, I still think if you've got the ability to be able to get carbohydrate replacement during exercise then you've probably got more flexibility because you've got all your gears and, and you're able to keep the, the fuel intake up. Um, it, it, it's not something I've tried personally to do, a, you know, an ultra-endurance race to, to know what it might feel like to be able to 
to be able to remove the need to eat carbohydrate in such large amounts and see how that feels in terms of performance. You know, maybe there are some um, advantages that I just haven't personally felt or, or had any of the athletes that I've worked with need to, to try. But um, I'm certainly open to those ideas, but certainly thinking the but it's always got to be a balanced approach. You know, what are, what are you going to lose by doing this? And what do you gain? And what's most important? And you know, in some in some cases, it might be that there's so little need to have a high gear that you you can afford to sacrifice it. In others, you might say yes. It's um, even though it is going for eleven hours, um, the the real crunch is going to come when I need to go faster and I need to have that um, extra gear. What do you think yeah. about that, Steph, in terms of, like, I mean, obviously you've done a bit of um, ultra running yourself. Mm-hmm. What do you feel about doing those 100Ks or 100 miles in terms of the need to be able to use that sort of top gear or, or it may not be top gear in terms of speed, it might be in terms of getting up up and down terrain and things like that as well? Yeah. Um, so personally, uh, like when I'm racing, I definitely need top gears. Um, so there's there's always times in the race where, you know, you you see the next girl or person that you know you, you need a surge, and then you'll you'll surge for a while, and then you know that's your strategy, that's your your tactic, and then you can get around the hill, and then you know slow slow down. So you you've got you've got definite periods where you're surging. There's hills that some people will choose to surge on, some people will choose to go more efficiently on. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, ultra endurance racing and stage racing, you know, one of our key ones is UTMB 160K. Um, and these races are at altitude as well, where we know obviously we're not getting as as much oxygen. So then I would be thinking if we're on that high high fat, low carb, how how efficient is that? Um, is that for us um, and and also particularly in these races I mean I'm talking about the ones that are not self-sufficient um, you, there's there's so many checkpoints usually um, that we can top up um, you know and have that supply of, of carbohydrate it's in in the instances for me it's it's about and with the athletes I work with obviously it's it's a lot about that gut gut tolerance um, and, and training the gut from that perspective. And that was going to be my next question um, in terms of, you know, people then, some people are going into the lower carb, high fat, but the, the concern for me is we know carbohydrate can be protective to the gut. So the concern, and we know that ultra endurance exercise can, you know, do injury to the gut. So, so what are what are athletes that are taking that approach, you know, potentially risking in terms of, of gut health? Yeah, and look, I, I think it's a really important point that we're focusing so much on the muscle and what it's doing that we're not thinking about so many other body systems and, you know, whether it's the gut, whether it's bone, whether it's iron metabolism, immune system, um, there are so many other systems that are um, based on using carbohydrate as a fuel or have some downstream effects when carbohydrate isn't available. And so some of our more recent studies have tried to look at some of the side effects or some of the other body systems and their responses to exercise. And the um, the carbohydrate seems to be really important for many of those systems to work optimally. So it would be nice to be able to continue to do some of this 
work on people who've been doing long-term either high-fat or high-carbohydrate approaches to see whether some of the, the systems either adapt or whether there's a, a long-term harm that um, might be accruing from this removal of carbohydrate. Yeah, yep, yep. And and I think the the other thing as well is um, also the, the at-risk population, again, um, in ultra-endurance exercise and sports, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people that will have inflammatory bowel conditions and they're, they're entering into these events as well. Um, and, yeah, the, the concern is um, what would that type of style of eating and fueling um, potentially be, be doing to their gut as well? So, yeah, a lot, a lot of research in, in that area too is, is needed, I think. Isn't it marvellous? We'll always have something to do. <laughs> I won't get bored. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. And so circling it back to something you said earlier about sort of fat adaptation and, and how long it takes and, you know, there's always this suggestion of, oh, she designed this study so they wouldn't be fully fat adapted because it takes longer, that sort of thing. Um, from all the stuff you've done, like you've done short-term studies, you've now done three-week studies, other people have done 12-week studies, where do you feel, do you feel that there's a particular point in time where you think it's adapted enough to be able to see whether this is going to work or not? Mm. Well, it depends what we're thinking as adaptation. So we've recently just published a study looking at a very short um, adaptation to the high-fat ketogenic version of the low-carb, high-fat diet and we found that those very high rates of fat oxidation were achieved in five to six days, just like we found when we did those non-ketogenic fat adaptation studies 20 years ago. Um, so there's no doubt that the muscle can adapt really quickly to upregulate, and what it can do is it can allow more fat to be broken down by the body, more fat to be transported to the muscle, taken up in the muscle and sent to the mitochondria. So all those things that help fat to become oxidised happen really quickly and they're robust changes that if you adapt to them, you probably need the same amount of time to de-adapt, if you like. So um, I'm not saying that's the only thing that's going on with ketogenic diet. In fact, you know, we're really... Um, quite interested in what these ketone bodies are doing and what they could have in terms of metabolic or other body system advantages. But in terms of the claim that the ketogenic diet or the low-carb, high-fat diets are all about making people into fat-burning monsters, um, that happens really quickly. So part of the three weeks that you, you might need to get another level of adaptation might be just about feeling normal again. Um, certainly we find that people have um, different responses to the carbohydrate restriction and it can often take around you know, two weeks before people feel kind of normal again in some of their training sessions. Um, even then some people still have ongoing um, feelings of just mental processing being impaired or just not feeling quite right. It's been really interesting talking to athletes about um, how they respond and how long it takes until they feel normal again. Some people, you know, in, within two weeks, um, even though their training characteristics might change, they, they, their feelings of well-being have returned, whereas for other athletes, they just can't adapt. They always just say that their brains just don't seem to be working as well. 
I've um, heard a lot about this keto clarity of people saying how switched on they feel when they're on the ketogenic diet, but none of the athletes that um, I've, I've worked with have actually reported that. So maybe I just haven't lucked into the to the right populations yet. But there's certainly differences in the way that people's um, other systems and other adjustments to the diet take. And certainly by the end of three weeks, we found, um, you know, people, if they've worked out one way or the other, whether this is going to be for them or not, but um, it hasn't translated into better performance in these higher intensity endurance events for, for us whether it something else happens after 12 weeks or 16 weeks is the million-dollar question. Um, and we're looking to um, to team up with some people who are um, the keto brigade and we want to together work with looking at some of the groups that have been very long-term keto, ketogenic diet followers. So rather than have a, a study where we intervene and watch what happens over 12 weeks or two years or however long it might need, we're going to see if we can get some long-term people who've um, adapted and try and do a cross-sectional study comparing them with some of their um, training partners who, who take a more carbohydrate normal approach and see if we can find any differences in the way they metabolise and, and respond to exercise. And that, my understanding is that's still a fair gap in knowledge. Like, there's a lot of talk on Twitter about that it can take literally months to fully fat adapt, but not much science mm. to tell us what that extra adaptation would be and, and whether it, it actually occurs in reality or not. That's right. And one of the the um, points of controversy is that there's one study that suggests that over this very long term adaptation, what happens is the muscle starts to to store more glycogen again and it's able to store glycogen in the absence of eating the carbohydrate. Um, all the other studies have not shown that and it doesn't really make a lot of sense as to why the body would adapt in that way or why that might be an advantage. But I think if we could go and have a look at an, another group, and particularly doing it in collaboration with um, some people who, are, who you know, know how to do the ketogenic diet as well as possible and you know, have beliefs that it's that it is um, beneficial. I think if we can join forces and so we can all go in open-minded and have the best possible look at it, then we might be able to get to the bottom of whether there is this um, long-term change in glycogen storage. Yeah, sounds great. I guess just to to bring this to a bit of a close uh, and and summary in terms of you know, the question, is low-carb right for me? Uh, I think it's pretty clear from this discussion if you're doing sort of short sort of 30 to maybe 90 minute events, whether it's a half marathon, a sprint distance triathlon, a, a criterium in cycling, um, probably not. It's going to be likely impairing. Um, or even if it's up to sort of two and a half, three hours of exercise, you know, Olympic distance triathlon, marathon or something like that, you probably wouldn't recommend this kind of approach for that scenario. Yes, it all, that all sounds pretty con, you know, conventional in terms of the way that we'd expect fuel metabolism to go. Yep. Um, and then you've got obviously the ultra endurance stuff where obviously it's very difficult to study because of the length, but there's probably some pros and cons, but it may not be such an issue. Uh, and there are obviously examples of people that have been fairly successful um, either way, I guess, you know, low carb mm -hmm. or, or not. Um, and I guess it's the ones in between. It's things like the half Ironman, um, 
those kind of events and, and even, I guess, the Ironman for the elite guys, which is probably in that sort of grey area in the middle, um, which I guess to some degree is it does mean a bit of self-experimentation, but leaning towards probably the carbohydrate is going to be the safer bet until proven otherwise. Yes, I think if you do the, um, the fuel utilisation and just intensity of exercise um, scenarios for most of the top athletes, they're still probably in the zones where having carbohydrate support would be beneficial. Yeah, so over maybe, I don't know, 80% of max heart rate, something around there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, I'm going to hand over to Steph to finish us off. I've got, I've got the fun job. I've got the getting to know Louise. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so just to help our listeners get to know you a, a bit more, apart from your scientific background, um, we've got five quick questions for you. Um, so if you could do anything besides what you're doing now, what would you choose to do? I'd be living in New York. <laughs> be living in New York doing... Yes, I, I think I might like to own a dress shop in New York, a vintage dress shop in New York, yeah. and then I could run the New York Marathon any time <laughs> I liked. <laughs> I was going to say you do it every year anyway, don't you? Yeah, yeah well, I just, I just feel that I'm a, a New Yorker that's trapped in the body of someone that lives in Canberra. <laughs> Very different. <laughs> um, <laughs> If you could time, well, you may have answered this, but if you could time travel, when and where would you go? I would go to when the Saints win their next premiership. Oh. <laughs> 1966. I don't, know, I don't know how long that's going to be. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I was alive in 66, but I, I didn't understand the importance of it, so it went past me. And so um, I that's hope right. I'd be- I'm a Melbourne supporter, so I've been waiting two years longer than you. Um, All right. uh, So what's a sport that you've never done but you've always thought, "Mm, that looks looks pretty cool? This sounds completely um, opposite, but I'm fascinated by mountain climbing. I've read all the Everest books and I always think, um, look, I hate heights and I hate... I hate sleeping in a sleeping bag and I hate being cold, so I'm probably not really suited to it. But it does have just this air of, um, oh, you know, that, that adrenaline. The adrenaline and the challenge and all the, you know, the, the um, again, it's, it comes back to nutrition and fuel metabolism, but the ways to approach that are so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you live by any piece of advice or or a motto oh that's a great one um i've got two probably ones eat chocolate when you can i knew (laughs) i was thinking i said to alan okay i'm gonna ask five questions where louise cannot mention chocolate (laughs) and you've mentioned it Uh, you deliberately changed the question for that reason (laughs) yeah Yeah. um the, the the other thing really is i think you know be a nice person. Like you don't have to be a dick. Yes. You can be good at what you do. And you know, it's yep. one of the one of the um the really um sad things about our times that it's just got into such a, a confrontational and rude yep. um way of dealing with people. And I think, you know, the best people in the world can still be the best at what they do, but be nice exactly. people. Exactly. Yeah. Um and final question. 
Who is someone you have always wanted to meet and why? Uh, George Clooney, I'm afraid. Oh, George Clooney, nice one. Why? That should be self-explanatory. I know, it is for me. Look, I did did the best I could um, in marrying the George Clooney of sports science, but I'd still like to meet the real one. Good one. Good one. I like it. (laughs) <laughs> awesome yeah. alright well on behalf of both Steph and I Louise thanks so much for your time um, as we said we thought this was going to be a half hour 40 minute chat and it's turned into a lot longer than that um, but you know really valuable insights and I think everyone will take a lot out of this in terms of working out whether low carbs are right for them yeah thank you very much I've really enjoyed it yeah thank you So there we have it, Professor Louise Burke and everything we need to know about is low carb right for me. So I guess Steph has kind of summarised this. If you are a professional athlete or an age grouper who's striving to be as as good as possible, Mm -hmm. then I guess it's fair to say that if you're in that sort of 30 minutes to three, four hour mark, um, or you're doing significant work in, in training or racing at sort of, you know, threshold or, or above, mm-hmm. then probably low-carb may not be the, the best solution. Yep. Uh, whereas if you're doing the race to, you know, ultra-endurance event, I guess the jury's still out a little bit, but there's other reasons why carbohydrate might be a good idea, whether that's something that you include all the time or just occasionally, uh, and then on, you know, on race day while you're doing those sort of long distances. And then I guess if you're an athlete or, or someone who's you know running, riding, um, just to finish, have a good time, raise money for charity, something like that, then, yeah, maybe low-carb might be a, a reasonable approach to take in that scenario. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, um, one of the things is with the ultra-endurance part of it, we there just isn't any research at the moment that we've seen that has shown any performance you know, benefit and understandably it's very difficult to, to do research in that area. But, um, yeah, the jury is, is, is still out on that. Mm, yeah, for sure. All right, so that brings us to our conclusion today. Hopefully that's answered the question for whoever's listening and, and whatever their scenario is. Um, we did talk about a couple of topics in that conversation, Steph, um, around sort of gut issues uh, and also around energy availability. So these are things I think we can address in, in future episodes. Yeah, that's much too big to, to bite off today as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's something we'll be delving into in, in greater detail. So that's episode one for The Long Munch. But, Steph, there's a bonus round. We're going to talk to an athlete who has experience with uh, both low-carb eating and not-so-low-carb eating. Yeah, we we sure are. We're going to talk to um, one of um, the elite race walkers that was involved in Louise Burke's um, study, the the Supernova study. Uh, He is Canadian. Uh, are people trying to guess who we're going to be talking talking to? You can just tell them. That's all right. I'll, I'll just tell them. So it's yeah. Evan Dunphy uh, from, from Canada. So he's going to be talking to us, you know, a bit more in terms of the, the practicality of, of the diet and, and how he felt um, on, on the diet as well and how mm. he found it impacted on, on performance and mentality. Yeah, and he has the the rare distinction of having one of the highest ever measured fat oxidation rates, basically the rate that you burn fat during exercise. He's got one of the highest values ever measured of all time. Far out. 
fat oxidizing burning machine. That's the one. All right, so really looking forward to that chat with Evan and that'll hopefully round out this episode nicely in terms of those practical issues, as you said. Yeah. Excellent. All right, so hopefully you all got a lot out of this podcast and we'll see you for the next episode real soon. Over and out.